Friends, I mentioned earlier that we are in the middle of Lamentations, an ancient collection of poetry that, uh, that was written as a response to uh, the great human tragedy in Israel's experience in their history. Uh, we are going to be studying the fourth poem in this collection this morning, Lamentations chapter 4. So first thing I want to do is invite you to turn there in your Bibles. It will be very helpful to you if you're able to walk with us verse by verse through what we're going to cover and see it for yourself as we move through it. So uh, please turn to Lamentations 4, and if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one. We've provided them at the end of each aisle for you to use and to take with you if you don't own a copy. One image for Lamentations that several writers have used is that lamentation serves as a, uh, the same sort of function that a war memorial serves. Lamentations is a testimony to something that happened, something terrible, something consequential, something that's too precious and powerful to be forgotten. In other words, it, it, it's a memorial to something that needs to be taken into how we view the world, to something that if we were to forget it, would, would, would only be repeated. Lamentations as War Memorial, an image that we've used a few times already in this series. I think it's really helpful. You know, a war memorial uh, has a different role to play than like, a history class about that war, for example. You know, so if you, if you think about Israel's experience here of being conquered by the Babylonians and many of them shipped off into exile and their city destroyed, if you think about their experience, how you might, the different ways you might try to come to understand it. I mean, history is part of it. That's why there are history books in the Old Testament that tell the story. Another thing that needs to be part of that is, is learning why it happened, so you can learn from it. So the prophets are especially good at that. But, but what Lamentations does is different. It fills out the picture, the response to this terrible tragedy, by helping us see what it felt like, by simply documenting that this human tragedy occurred. That's the function of lament in the life of God's people. It's simply bearing witness to something terrible that happened. Taking that thing into how you view the world and letting it affect you. So let's say, so, so, so this is, this is uh, responding to Israel's fundamental tragedy. One, one of, not the human tragedy in all of American history. Uh, one, one of the, if, if you boil it down to an event, would be the Civil War. There's the number of Americans killed, the ongoing effects that it has on the national life, especially in the immediate aftermath, but even some till today. And, and it's important to, to try to unpack what the Civil War, what, what happened in the Civil War, how it came to be, who did what, when, and why. In graduate school, I sat in seminars, read books, and had conversations ad nauseum about these sorts of factors, and that's important. What were the causes? Who were the political figures involved? What strategies did they use on the battlefield? Were the sacrifices justified or not? That sort of thing. That's part of what it means to, to grapple with the reality that is the Civil War. That's another thing, though, to stand on a battlefield and just to simply acknowledge what happened there on that plot of ground, no matter the causes involved. I don't know if you guys have ever visited some of the battlefields that are in Franklin, Tennessee, just south of here. There's a huge battle that happened there. And there's this one place in particular that's really well preserved and excellent tour and experience memorializing what happened called the Carter House. It's right downtown in Franklin, still standing as it was at the time of the battle, full of bullet holes from the battle. It's one thing to sit in a seminar and try to pick apart what led to that battle and what strategies were pursued in that battle and what the effects going forward were from that battle. It's another thing to stand in the yard of the Carter House 
And just to imagine what happened there. To, to stand in this, where the center of the battle took place, where nearly 10,000 people, individuals, humans, precious people, died or were wounded in the space of just a few hours. Much of it in hand-to-hand combat. And to acknowledge simply, this, this happened. This is terrible. This is the world we belong to. It's like this. It has events like this. It's a world where it's possible for one human to inflict pain and death on another human as if it's nothing. It's a, it's, it's a world where it's possible for, for friends and even brothers raised in the same nation, the same city, sometimes in the same family to do this to one another. It's a world in which it's possible for educated, reasonable, church-going people to disagree about whether it's okay for one human being to have comprehensive, unchallenged ownership over another human being. It's big scale what Carter House represents. You zoom it down to a personal level. This is a world in which, in which your home can be taken over by people against your will. In which you're forced to huddle with your family down in a cellar while you listen to the sounds of battle outside your own door. In which you know that your son, who grew up playing in that yard, is now fighting for his life in that yard. And whatever else this is, whatever else it is, whatever else may need to be said, to acknowledge that this is a human tragedy. I think that's what our author's doing throughout Lamentations too. It, 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 It's acknowledging that this is a world where unjust, barbaric, brutal enemies have their way. This is a world where mothers can be so desperate, so hungry, that they lose their minds and eat their children. That we live in a world where this could happen. This world is broken. We have to be honest about that. We have to bear witness to it. That's what Lamentations is trying to do. Other books explain it. Go into all sorts of details about what happened and when. This book bears witness to it. The first sermon that we preached on this series, on chapter 1, we noticed how in that, in that poem and then, and then throughout the book in different places, the poet is calling out for somebody to bear witness to what's happening. Just crying out, please, just look and see, has there ever been any suffering like my suffering? The poet asked several times in chapter 1. We talk there about how, how important it is for the suffering person to be seen, to have their suffering confirmed, to be told, yes, it is terrible. It is what it seems to you. That just is a reality I can't deny. To, 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 to be confirmed that it's not crazy, that you're not crazy in what you're thinking, what you're seeing. That was called for in chapter 1. I believe that's what the poet is doing in chapter 4. Chapter 4, what we're going to cover this morning, doesn't break new ground over what the other chapters have covered. It's actually kind of redundant even. Some of the same themes and some of the same images come up again as they had in er earlier parts of the chapter. It's doing a slightly different work. It's not breaking new ground. It's bearing witness, just like chapter 1 called for. What's unique about this poem is the way that it almost systematically breaks down who suffered and how. It goes category by category through the people of the city of Jerusalem and what they experienced when Jerusalem fell and just describes it. 
And I think the reason it does this is that it just stands for us as a memorial. It does what it's asking us to do. To look, to see, to acknowledge that it's real. And to take that reality into how we view the world. So, partly because that's what this poem is doing. I want to use this sermon to do something different than we have been doing in our series on lament so far. Uh, I think walking through and being faithful to the details of this poem isn't going to take as much time as it would have if we hadn't already been through three poems that cover a lot of the same ground. Because of that, because I think we'll have more time to do in-depth application, trying to figure out how to take what the Bible says in its context and apply it to ours, how to use the model that's been set for us in Lamentations and our own looking around and, 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 and lamenting what we see now. I want to spend the majority of our time today trying to embrace the model Lamentations has set for us and bearing witness to a social problem that we live with, that afflicts our society, that's real and terrible that for whatever else it is is a human tragedy that needs to be acknowledged and taken into our view of the world and what's wrong with it so what i want to do first is walk you through the model that lamentations 4 sets for us what it looks like to bear witness to acknowledge what happened what's true and then i want to spend most of our time using uh, using this model and, 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 and using one example in our own national life to bear witness to the problems that we see around us. And then I want to very briefly at the end take a third step and, and just leave you with some gospel hope for how the gospel frees us to lament in the way that Lamentations teaches us to. We're going to spend most of our time on the middle section this morning. But I do want to begin by reading for you this poem the model that Lamentations 4 sets for us. And what I want to do as I read it is just ask you to pay attention to how many different people, d- descriptions of, of categories of people come out in this poem. This is the shortest poem that we've looked at so far. So I'm going to read the whole thing at the top and then just come back through it and pull out some examples for you. But as we read through the entire poem, look for the different categories of people that he addresses. Think of them as, 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 a war, as building a memorial for you listing out categories that you should pay attention to. Now, if, if you found Lamentations 4, I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read this poem for us so that we can walk through it together. This is the word of the Lord. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. 
Now their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It's become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger. Who wasted away. Pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth didn't believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we couldn't walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we had said, Under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he he will punish. He will uncover your sins. This is God's word. You can be seated. If you're following along in the worship guide, we're going to spend a moment here considering what it looks like to bear witness. I don't know if you noticed, but as we walk through this chapter, very little attention paid to the backstory, to the causes for this. There's a mention of it, but nothing compared to, say, chapter 2, which was all about that. What we see in this chapter is just simply a catalog of people affected and how they were affected by this terrible judgment. Maybe you noticed a lot of resonance with things we've already considered. If you've been here in earlier weeks, and there's a lot, of, there was a reference to God's wrath. There was tons of reversals. That's been a major theme through the book. Like this was, now this is. There's a prayer for justice against those who caused and celebrated Israel's downfall. There at the end, we've seen that before. But the theme that sets this poem apart, the thing I want to make sure we notice this morning, is is the way in an, almost the style of an encyclopedia it describes the pain of Jerusalem's people. The focus is not on why this happened. It's not yet on how to fix what's happened. The focus of this poem is a monument or a memorial to a terrible reality that has to be seen and acknowledged. In other words, it's simply a testimony to a human tragedy. A street level view of what went down. I just want to show you a couple examples so you'll see where I'm coming from. 
The first category that he mentions is in verse 2. It's young men. These were the most precious treasure the city had, their people. Yeah, he's complained about the gold growing dim and the holy stones being scattered, but what really bothers him, what really breaks his heart is what happened to the people. These precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in gold, they were treated as if their lives mattered nothing, as if they were worthless, just a couple of common pots formed by the hands of a potter and thrown away when you're done with them, disposable. Their lives were cheap in this siege, dispensable. It shouldn't have been. Verse 3 laments the character of the city. You know, even, jackals are, are commonly associated with ruined cities, uh, a kind of symbol of the wildness that comes to a ruined city. But did you notice here the jackal is not a symbol of the wildness? The jackal, compared to Israel, compared to the daughter of his people, is a model of a nurturing mother. The jackals don't deprive their children of milk, but... But my people, he says, they've become cruel. They're like ostriches who they believed at the time would, would abandon their young, leave their eggs out in the wilderness to fend for themselves. Speaking of the young, the babies are the next category of person mentioned here. Verse 4. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food. Nobody gives it to them. His heart is breaking for what's happened to the children who didn't choose what came down on them who were caught up in this judgment that fell on Israel. They're starving, and there's nobody to help them. And this, this tragedy came not just to infants who couldn't help themselves, it came, verse 5, even to the wealthy, to those who had resources and abilities, those who once feasted on delicacies, who had everything that that uh, the ancient person could want in terms of food. They, they're perishing in the streets. They're dying of hunger too. Those who once brought up in purple, think of the silver spoon, purple as a symbol of royalty and wealth, they embrace the ash heaps now. They've got nothing to hold on to but, but ashes. Verses 7 and 80 shifts to the beautiful people. Now, we had beautiful people in my city, purer than snow. Beauty of their form like sapphire compared them to jewels. Now though... Blacker than soot. They're filthy. They're not recognizable in the streets. Their skin that was so clear and pure has now shriveled on their bones. It's more like wood than it is like skin. Verse 10, it's the mothers that he mourns for. He's empathizing with them. He acknowledges these were once compassionate women. Something happened. They were traumatized. Their minds were not stable. These compassionate women were eating their children to stay alive. Verse 10. He mentions the spiritual leaders in verses 13 to 15. The prophets whose job was to see clearly on behalf of the people wandered blind, verse 14, through the streets, seeing nothing. The priests who were set apart, clean, untouchable, holy, Well, now they're defiled, verse 14, with blood. No one can touch them. And finally, he mentions the king, verse 20. Maybe you didn't get that reference. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, that's their king. He was the one under under whose shadow they expected to live in the nations. It was under his protection and provision as their representative that they expected to live and be safe and secure. And now even their king is cowering down in a pit when he's found by their conquerors. Their conquerors take him and dispense with him as if he's nothing. You see what he's doing? He's just listing out the tragedy 
that befell each one of these categories of person. He's trying to make sure all of it is seen for what it is. He's just bearing witness to it. This happened. It was terrible. He's answering, in other words, the call that chapter 1 put out. A call for witness. For somebody to see and acknowledge it. Not to shrink back or minimize it. He's simply describing a human tragedy. And I think that's the unique weight that chapter 4 carries in this book. Not adding new dimensions to our understanding of the history of it. The causes behind this judgment. What it's doing is helping us remember how important it is to tell the truth. Not just about our own personal problems, but to, like this man is doing, to describe social problems around us and bear witness to them. To catalog them. To not shrink back from acknowledging the full weight of them. Now, every week we come to this book, we've talked about how our challenge is to try to let this text speak for itself about its context and experience of these people. You know, it, it is about something that happened to Israel that, that, that had a unique relationship with God. That's not like ours. You know, America is not Israel. No other nation in the history of the world has been what Israel was to God. And there's some uniqueness here that we have to affirm and say, not, not the same thing as us. But, but our, our job is also to try to figure out why, why has God preserved this for us, if not to learn from it? What has he left us, left this here for us to learn? What can we pull from the model that this book sets for us and apply to our situation now? now I mentioned earlier that this, this kind of lament here is known as a communal lament. The Psalms are full of these. Where Israel is looking at problems in the society, not just personal problems. And I think that this is something we can especially learn from in this chapter. Because I think our, my sense is, and this is, this, I'm talking about myself here and sort of anecdotal experience of others. Maybe this will apply to you, maybe it won't. We're also we're, we're much more quickly drawn to acknowledging and talking about personal problems, personal sins, the need for personal repentance than we are for acknowledging social problems, for, for communal problems that need to be acknowledged and fought against. This prayer is a communal or a city lament focused on the whole society and it's an opportunity for us to try to take it up and to do it for ourselves. The brokenness that this poem describes and, and, and laments like this describe it is never less than personal. It always involves people. I mean, that's why this catalog of types of people was gone through earlier. But it's more than just personal. So I think the question for us is where must we bear witness to the brokenness in our community? There are a host of examples we could pull from. For the sake of learning what we need to learn from this poem, though, we've decided to focus on just one example, one pressing, urgent example that should be at the forefront of the minds of, of all of us who live in this country. I want to take a little extra time this morning over what we would normally be able to do to, to unpack a specific example where we are responsible to bear witness, to lament, and to look through to God for hope. I want to speak this morning about racial inequality in America. To just talk about the shape of this human tragedy. And, and, and hopefully God helping us to see how lament, what we've been trying to learn from over the summer gives us as Christians, it gives our church a starting place for healthy and unified engagement on this issue. In, in a wider climate that's divisive, polarized, and poisonous. Lament, I've said, always involves bearing witness to a problem, telling the truth about what's happened. 
It always calls us away from the notion that it's unhealthy or unloving to talk about awful realities as if by talking about them, looking carefully at them, we're holding ourselves back from peace and unity. Lament lament as a genre and this book as a testimony says, no, that's not true, actually. We have to remember. We have to be honest. We have to let lament, as one writer put it, topple the idol of Mayberry as if everything's fine when it isn't. So what is this problem that we bear witness to? We must bear witness to the problem of racial inequality in our our country. Recently, our elders uh, read a very helpful book called Divided by Faith. Strongly recommend this book to you. It's by a a couple of sociologists, one named Michael Emerson, one named Christian Smith. The book is is, uh, a a book of sociology. So they do a lot of interviews, they do a lot of quantitative surveys, and then they, 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 they... Uh, bundle it up into stats for you that can help you get a sense of what people are thinking on racial issues in America. So specifically what they're interested in is the different responses of white and black evangelicals to what they call the problem of racialization in America. They're using that term, racialization, as opposed to racism, very intentionally. When we hear the word racism, a lot of times like our our, our armor comes on. I am not a racist. I don't look down on anybody. I see all people as equal. And that word has connotations that can sometimes just kill the conversation. So they're they're setting that word aside mostly and saying what we're talking about is a racialized society. What they mean by a racialized society is this. It's a society wherein race matters. This is a quote from the book. Race matters profoundly for differences in life experiences, life opportunities, and social relationships. Let me read that again to you. A racialized society is one where race matters profoundly for differences in life experiences, life opportunities, and social relationships. Let me just give you a few examples of what they mean when they say that ours is a racialized society before we talk about how we respond to that problem. Just a few examples. These are just stats that you can find for yourself easily with a quick Google search on inequality in America as it is. Not talking about causes of it yet, just talking about the fact of it. These are, these are, uh, these are numbers pulled from, um, from a variety of different sources, uh, pulled together by magazines like Time Magazine Forbes, and Forbes Magazine that you can find for yourself, these articles that I've gotten these numbers from, just, just Googling it. Here's a few examples of, of, of how our society just is a racialized society where, where your experiences are going to be different depending on which race you belong to. Housing. Let's consider housing, for example. Nearly, uh, you're nearly twice as likely to own your home if you're a white American than if you're a black American. Forty, roughly 41% of black Americans own their homes compared to roughly 79% of white Americans. Let me tell you why that stat matters. It's a tremendous gap that has a trickle-down effect on, for example, neighborhood stability. Or when neighborhoods are, are populated by, by mostly by renters, then oftentimes those who live in rented uh, houses in neighborhoods around which they've built their lives, where they have their connections, where they are known and where they know others, have to face agonizing choices between leaving that kind of neighborhood and, and rising rents that make it difficult to feed your family. Homeowners don't have to face that choice in the same way. Not to mention the obstacle that not owning your home presents to, to, to building long-term wealth that you can pass on to your descendants. 
And friends, in this case, this gap in home ownership, this, this double home ownership among white Americans versus black Americans, stems directly from policies during the Jim Crow era. When mortgages were made more available to white Americans coming out of the war, making it more uh, uh, possible for a wider number of people than ever before to own homes, African Americans were explicitly denied access to those mortgages. And this gap in home ownership today directly stems from, from that policy decision 50, 60, 70 years ago. Speaking of economics, the economic effects of, of housing differences. Let, let me just talk about the wealth gap. The wealth gap right now, currently, between African Americans and white Americans is staggering and it's growing. For, Forbes magazine article that I read this week this is pulling numbers from, from five years ago even, from two, 2013. It's worse now. The median wealth among white Americans was just under $120,000, while for black Americans, the median wealth was just under $2,000. The unemployment rate is twice as high among black Americans as white Americans. Black Americans are twice as likely to live in poverty as white Americans, more than 20% in total. That just is. That's, that, those are just facts, friends. And behind these facts, let me just give you one more example that I was blind to for a long time, to my shame, and have only recently been recognizing for the problem that it is. Behind these other economic problems, the housing problems, education problems, these other gaps, contributing to many of them and making them worse is a problem of mass incarceration. There's a book by Michelle Alexander called The New Jim Crow that's provocative and profound, stirring read on this phenomenon. Alexander notes that in the past 30 years alone, the prison population in our country has increased from 300,000 people to more than 2 million people. The majority of that increase has been driven by drug convictions. And the vast majority of those drug convictions disproportionately affect African Americans. She writes, the racial dimension of mass incarceration is its most striking feature. No other country in the world imprisons so many of its racial or ethnic minorities. The United States, she writes, imprisons a larger percentage of its black population than South Africa did at the height of apartheid. In major cities, she writes, as many as 80% of young African American men have criminal records and face legal discrimination in the same exact categories as the Jim Crow laws of the 1950s. This is, this is the insight of this book that, that rocked me when I recognized it. The problem of mass incarceration is creating a, what she calls a racialized underclass that passes down from generation to generation. Because with the criminal records that so many of these citizens are, are, are building for themselves comes a block, a roadblock to access to institutions and opportunities that you need for uplift. So, so think of these. These are categories according to which you can be legally discriminated against because of, of criminal convictions. Jobs. What housing you're eligible for. Whether you can vote. Educational opportunities. Even some public benefits. The access to these basic institutions that are provided to help people raise their standard of living are denied legally 
to those with certain criminal convictions. These are the exact same categories that were denied legally to African Americans in the 1950s simply because they were African American. But the problem remains. Then it was about laws applied only to one race. Now it's by laws applied to criminals overwhelmingly skewed towards one race. Now, friends, all I've done here is list facts to try to build out this claim that the authors of Divided by Faith make. We live in a racialized society, meaning that simply that what race you belong to will have a dramatic effect on your quality of life. Not not, not, not necessarily. There are always going to be exceptions on both sides of that, but dramatically affect your quality of life. The opportunities you have, the experiences you have, the relationships available to you. This is just what is. And it's tragic. Year after year, friends, more innocent people, precious people, made in God's image, are born into a social context they didn't choose hedged in by limitations that they aren't responsible for and won't be able to overcome on their own. It just isn't true that everybody starts out on an equal playing field. That just isn't true. Yes, in our country, there are tremendous opportunities for self-elevation. Some of those opportunities are unprecedented in the history of the world. It's one of the things I love about our country and its history. There are remarkable opportunities that wouldn't be available in many other places, but... It's right to, and it's right to celebrate that and to honor those whose leadership make that possible. But it isn't all or nothing. It isn't that either everybody has these wonderful opportunities or no one does. We're saying, yes, they're available, but they are skewed dramatically towards one category of people and away from another. And that that's not okay. Now, to me, it seems that this is exactly where conversations begin to break down in our culture. We immediately start spinning. Once we talked about these facts, these stats, we start spinning on solutions or causes, factors about the past, how we got here, who's responsible for what, what would justice look like from this point. We start spinning on those issues. And those are crucial conversations to have, uh, especially because the politics involved are important. And, and, and God has deployed his children in this country with power to vote. So it's not that we shouldn't have these conversations. We should. Especially among people that love one another in Christ and should be able to to talk to one another about difficult and divisive things. That's a power given to us as citizens by God to be used carefully for His glory. But, But what we should learn from Lamentations, for a host of reasons, we just can't afford to jump immediately from the problem I've just been talking about into these conversations about policy and solution. Lament gives us a resource for a better way. It gives us a unifying starting point that should be completely without controversy among brothers and sisters redeemed by the grace of God. We bear witness. We say this is true. This really is happening. It really is terrible. It affects people, millions of people, precious people made in God's image, brothers and sisters of Christ, born into and often trapped into conditions they didn't choose for themselves. Friends, we just don't have the, we don't have the right, we don't have any business talking about policy unless we're starting with a posture of lament, of grief, 
And that's the resource we can bring to this national problem in this conversation such as it is. That's the takeaway we must make from this model that Lamentations 4 has set us. Any, any, any conversations about policy must start from one shared, unified foundation, at least amongst those of us who have known and tasted God's grace. That foundation, that posture is lament. One of the most convicting uh, observations in that book, Divided by Faith, to me, where I saw myself from, from years past and I hope have repented and mourned over what I've seen in myself. There's a, there's a point in this in this book where he's talking about the responses, different, he's talking about the different responses between white Protestants and black Protestants to these sheer facts about inequality in America. He said, then the white Protestants that they interviewed, their respondents, apart from being irritated at the racial inequality question, were not at all bothered by the racial inequality itself. Except for a few people, he wrote, inequality in no way troubled, moved, or animated our respondents. So, I've been convicted about that. I mean, I I can remember times in my life where I was immediately drawn into talking policy, reasons, history. All the details, all the factors involved, right? Trying to untangle the knot. But, but I have been who they're describing in my past. Jumping over the brokenheartedness, the weeping over what is. And that skews the conversation, friends. When you talk policy from any posture other than one of lament... It skews the conversation, it ends up distorting the picture, and it fails the model that Lamentations has set for us, the call to bear witness. And it just isn't acceptable for Christians saved by God's grace. No one of us should be unmoved by this problem. And even if our paths on policy, on justice, what it looks like, diverge, we must start with the posture of lament. Think of how differently, just take one politically charged example, think about how differently we respond to officer-involved shootings of unarmed black men if our posture begins with lament, before we get into anything, before we start trying to, from a distance, arbitrate what went down, who had what, did he have a gun, did he not have a gun, what did the officer see, was he attacked... Before we arbitrate any of that, which we're in no position to do, just simply recognizing that every black body killed in such a fashion evokes for brothers and sisters of color the dark passage, centuries of slave of, of slaveholding and violence, lynching, Jim Crow laws that were applied rigorously and ruthlessly against them. That every act of violence pulls from that history, brings it back up, and causes a grief that needs to be acknowledged and shared before we talk about anything else. Now, now I realize that especially among those of us in the majority culture, a lot of times our conversations about these sorts of problems can get sidetracked or broken off by what strikes me as one of two moves. By, or maybe, maybe both of them. The rush to judgment, 
sort of explain why this reality affects these people due to their own choices. Or why this reality is really not my fault. I'm not involved in what is going on here. That's why I wanted to close with how I believe the gospel provides us precisely the power we need to avoid those two conversation-killing responses to the problem of racial inequality. The impulse to judge other people's responsibility and to deny my own responsibility. The gospel message, friends, you need to hear if you've never heard it before, is that the God who made us, he, is, he, he owns us. Everything we are belongs to him. And yet every day that we've ever lived, we've held back as our own the, the life that he gave us. We've chosen to use it to, for our purposes, not his. To, to, to leverage it for our ends, for what seems important to us, rather than what he's called us to. And still, even though, he des- even though what we deserve is for him to pull away the life that he gave us, to punish us with death, He came to us in the person of His Son and died the death we were supposed to die. He gave that to us. Apart from everything we deserve, He loved us anyway. He came for us. So that every person, no matter what you've done, no matter how guilty you may be, if you trust in Christ, you stand forgiven and cleansed and justified in the eyes of the God who made you. That's the gospel message. It's offered to you if you'll have it this morning. But this gospel message is not just a message of personal salvation. It has implications that trickle down all through the lives of believers. The New Testament is full of examples of of writers trying to help you see how what God has done for you in Christ applies to how you treat one another. Paul's letter is full of that kind of connection. What, What would being loved by God so well in Christ do to our posture on this issue? How might the gospel free us to bear witness rather than to judge or to deflect. Speaking to my friends in the majority culture now. The message of the gospel sets aside as completely beside the point who's responsible for what in this issue. And it sets aside any reason we might have to dodge our own responsibility for the problem. Christ took on problems infinitely more valuable and entirely without exception a consequence of my personal choices. He took, the, he took on those consequences for me. No one will ever be more guilty than I am. No one will ever be more deserving of social distress because of their choices than I am. But I've been forgiven. Who am I to judge other people? No one can show me anything that I'm guilty of that will add to the weight of what I already know is true. My sin, my self-regard, my self-absorption, that's an onion you can peel back throughout all of eternity and never reach the bottom. So nothing you can show me about me changes the overall picture that the gospel has already told me about myself. I am so hopelessly lost in sin that it took the God of the universe coming for me to redeem me out of the mess that I had made. And Christ stands for me anyway. So what do I have to protect? I don't need to be a judge. I don't need to fear being a defendant. I'm simply freed up to bear witness. To look closely at what is. To tell the truth about it. And to hope in God in it. 
Father, I pray that this gospel message, this hope that you've given us would affect how we approach our lives as citizens in this place that you've put us in this time with its unique needs and responsibilities. It requires more wisdom than we have. So we ask for you to help us. It requires more self-confidence to be willing to, to, uh, to, to, to be shown to be wrong and to have reasons to repent than, than what I have on my own. I pray that you would break me down, humble me, and do that for everyone else in this room. And we pray that through Christ and the protection he gives us, through the hope of justification he has promised, we would be willing to see what is, to respond to it in love, and to seek the justice that is so precious to you. Guide us as we seek to be faithful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.